Hebrews 13. Before I read for you verses 5 and 6, I think it would probably serve us well to do a running start, give a little context, just by way of reminder. This is kind of simplistic, but the whole book could essentially be summarized as such. Jesus is better. Do you believe that? Chapters 11 and 12 say, if you do, trust him. Live, walk by faith. And you're like, I do, preacher, I trust him. Which is, I believe, why chapter 13 was there. Because chapter 13 says, it's not enough just to say you trust him. You need to prove it by the way you live. Let your life demonstrate that in truth, you trust this one who you claim to be better. If you recall, two weeks ago I was here in this pulpit, and we noticed the first mark of a life transformed by trusting in Jesus is you're going to start loving people differently. You're going to love what the love God loves. Last week our pastor looked at verse 4, where we saw it's not just how you love on the outside, it's actually, let's bring it close to home. Do you actually love your spouse this way? Are you committed to the covenant of your marriage? But if you recall, he actually read verses 5 and 6, but he didn't explain them, and so it would be wrong of us to just pass over. We can't leave it on the table. Today, I'm going to draw our attention back to just verses 5 and 6, for I think you will see with me, these are weighty, weighty words that we need to reckon with this Lord's day. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 5. Hear now the words of our God. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? To join me as we pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and by the power of your spirit, open our eyes to see the all too rare jewel of contentment. It eludes so many of us, Lord. Help us to see it for what it is. Help us to savor it for what it is. Help us to live it, Lord. Oh, grant us this grace of contentment, we pray. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. You may be seated. Be content with what you have. Did those six words not strike you like darts to the heart? Be content with what you have. Did verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money, be content with what you have, is that verse not like an arrow aimed at the soul of who you are? When I first read this verse, it was as if the writer of Hebrews was a skilled archer who took the arrow of verse 5 and just aimed it at the bullseye of my heart. And I see that because if you actually read slowly verse 5 in the Greek, you'll notice when he says, keep your life free from the love of money, by the word life, he means not lifestyle. He means who you really are, your heart the essence of you. Keep your heart free from money. What does he say? Love of money. A lusting or a craving for money. In other words, his, his issue is not with money merely. 
It's not with possessing things. It's with being possessed by those things. It's not with your bank account. It's with leaning on your bank account, banking on your bank account, so to speak. His issue is not with possessions merely, but being preoccupied with all the things of this world. He is saying, be freed from this. Don't love it. And that just spoke right to my heart, because who amongst us does not stand under the weight of that phrase, keep your life free from the love of money? Oh, how many of us are overwhelmed with feelings of covetousness, of desiring that which we don't need. I mean, who amongst us has not been in the unenviable position of buying things you can't afford with money you don't have to please people you don't even like? How many of you have just quietly looked around the world, looked around this room, and see everybody else as the haves, see yourself as the have-nots, and then do something that ends up putting you in a third class of people, the haves who have not the money to afford what they have. We are just all overcome. Ours is a materialistic age. Who amongst us is, not, is immune to this? Verse 5 is like an arrow aimed at the target of your heart. And I wonder if those six words, be content with what you have, pierce you like a dart to your heart. Has it cut you with conviction like it did me? When you realize, I, I actually am not content with what I have. More often than not, I'm discontent. I, I want more. Have any of you in this room ever confessed the sin of discontent, of covetousness? I meet with a brother every week, which involves confessing sin. I have publicly prayed prayers of confession. I have heard countless, countless, countless men and women over the years of pastoral ministry confess sin to me. And do you want to know something? I have never confessed, nor have I ever heard one confess the sin of covetousness or of discontent. It eludes us all. And so I pray verse 5 for you, which may indeed be aimed at the air, at the target of your heart. I pray it pierces you with cutting conviction. And I pray it does so with force. Because I want you to see that this arrow, verse 5, is drawn back on the bow of the whole Bible. The archer didn't just take this arrow and throw it at you like a dart. He has pulled it back on the whole bow of the Bible, and with great force, with great precision, he is going to let it rip. I want you to see that the Apostle Paul's hands are helping this writer draw the bow back. When the Apostle Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, bear in mind that this is not a unique argument to this writer. Paul's hands aren't the only one on this bow. Moses' hands were. Just remember when Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gave the Ten Commandments to God's people, the first commandment was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't have any other gods before me. Do you remember the last commandment? Don't covet. Don't want other things. Now, why are those the bookends? Why did God start with that commandment and end with that commandment? The Apostle Paul gives us a clue. He's got two hands on this bow. Not only does he say, keep your life free from the love of money, 
Not only does he say the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, the Apostle Paul also says, beware of covetousness, because in Colossians he tells us it is idolatry. It is, in essence, worshiping something other than God, which makes sense why God would book in the Ten Commandments by saying, don't have idols before me, and remember, not all that you think are idols, uh, not everything that you think is an idol. There's other things that are that you don't even realize. So be careful. Don't covet, or you will be an idolater like the rest. Jesus, his own hands are on this bow, drawing it back with full force when he says you cannot love God and money. So do you feel the full weight of the Bible? I could go on and on for 30 minutes quoting more texts of the Bible that are together pulling this arrow back of verse 5 and aiming it at the target of your heart, saying, keep your life, dear brother or sister, free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Now, if you feel that, if you feel that this command is clear, that you are to be satisfied, content, in God and not in the things of this world. If you know this command is clear, you're like, Kyler, I hear it. I know that I put other things before him. I know that I love, I look to for security, the things in my bank account, my wife, my children. I look to my career. I look to, will you fill in the blank? I look to so many things as my source of security, as my firm foundation to stand on. I know, Kyler, that I am prone to love, so to speak, money. If you know that that command is clear, I suspect you are a great deal like me and at the same time you would admit that this command is crippling. For when you hear, be content with what you have, it is like an arrow to your soul, a dart to your heart, and you feel like you are wounded, immobile, crippled by this command. Kyler, I want to obey. I want to be freed from discontent. I want to be freed from loving money. I want to find my contentment. How? How do I do this? This is what's so beautiful about this text. I want you to see that if it's pierced you and it's left you feeling crippled, I want you to think of it this way. This text is not meant to slay you, but to sanctify you. I want you to think of it like a scalpel in the hands of a good physician. He is going to have to cut you, but that cut is not meant to harm you, but to heal you. And I want you to feel the cutting conviction of the Spirit this Lord's day and see He is going to use these slaying cuts to sanctify you, to help you see, to learn what is in my judgment the key to contentment. Did you notice that the latter half of verse 5, He tells us what the key to contentment is? He tells us, keep your life free from the love of money. Don't, or be content rather, with what you have. And then He says, for. Now what does He say next? You might suspect him to say, for I'll make sure you're never in want. You might expect him to say, for I'll make sure all of your negative circumstances work themselves out. You might expect him to say, for I'll grant you all the possessions you want. I'll take care of all the circumstances you hate. But instead, he kind of surprises us. Speaking to these wandering Jews these wandering new believers to whom the book of Hebrews is written, he proclaims a most amazing promise. Verse 5, for he himself has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
So then we can confidently say, confidently, I want you to fixate on that word underscored in your Bible, confidently, thoreo, it means to have courage, to trust, to put your weight on this. We can, with great courage and boldness and confidence, say, the Lord is my helper. I don't need to be afraid. What can man do to me? In other words, in my judgment, this verse is showing us that the key to contentment that eludes so many of you is, for lack of a better word, confidence in Christ. Do you see the logic of the text? Verse 5a is the command. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. The latter half of verse 5 and verse 6 is how to do this command. It's not what to do, it's how to do it. For he has told you, I'll never leave you and forsake you. The first half of verse 5 is a crippling command, so to speak. The latter half of verse 5 and 6 is like a healing hand that is going to pick you up. The first half of verse 5, it is a call to contentment. And the latter half of verse 5 into verse 6 is the key to contentment. So how do we do it? How do we obey what is otherwise a crippling command? The key to contentment, dear church, is to put your confidence in Christ. And let me just squeeze this verse for you. I'm going to squeeze it for the rest of the hour so that you can get every last drop out of it. I want you to see how much is there. Firstly, if you're taking notes, mark this down. You ought to place your confidence in his presence. For he says in the latter half of verse 5, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Just let that hit you. The God who spoke to Jacob in Genesis upon fear of death of Esau, who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Jacob, he has said it to you. The God who spoke to Joshua on the edge of the promised land, be strong, Joshua, be courageous, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, he has spoken it to you. The God who spoke to Israel on the edge of the promised land, go with courage and boldness, my people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has promised this to you. The God who spoke to Solomon through his daddy, David, I, the Lord, will never leave you nor forsake you, Solomon. He has said this to you, my friends. The God who said these very words to the great prophet Isaiah, fearful for the judgment that was to come. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Isaiah. He has spoken this to you. Have you forgotten, dear church, that ours is a God of providence who is present, who is near, who is here, who's with you? Do, do you realize that your discontented heart is in all likelihood unbelief disguised? Your discontented heart is likely disguised unbelief in the providence and goodness of God. It is knowing in your mind that He is near, He is here, He is with you, but in point of fact, living as if He's not here and near. It is living with a perpetual sense that if you don't do enough, you might get left or forsaken. So you need to lean on some other sources of security. And so just uproot that weed in your heart 
and confess before him with me, oh God, would you help me see that my discontented heart is likely due to the fact that I have failed to trust that you are a good God of providence who has promised to me with full assurance that you will never leave me nor forsake me. For if I actually believed that, I would not need to worry. If I actually believed your promise is true, if I believed that you were present, if I actually placed my confidence, my trust in your presence, I would not feel like I need to lean, need to grab, need to grip other things to stay stable and secure. Oh God, would you free me from the sin of discontent, from the lust for covetousness, by reminding me anew that I, Lord God, will never be left by you. I, dear Jesus, will never be forsaken by you. Oh, my friends, put your confidence firstly there. Trust his presence. But if you could read the original language, do you want to know what's strange about that statement? You don't really see it in the English. If you were to read this in the Greek, it doesn't actually say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It actually says, I will never not leave you, and no, never not forsake you. That's what we call not a double negative, not a triple negative, not a quadruple negative. What is it, like a quintuple negative? I don't even know what you call that. He is, has, in essence, said, I will never, 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 never leave you. Now, I just want you to let that hit you for a second. God has spoken with a measure of authority that might lead you to think he's exaggerating. How many parents in this room have ever told your child no, and then three seconds later, you just let them do it? Your no is not your no. How many of you have ever said, I would never do that, and then you end up doing it? How many of you were as perplexed as I was when you watched that famous movie, Titanic, and in that famous scene, she says, I'll never let go, Jack, and what is the next thing she does? She lets go. So when God says, I will never, 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 never leave you, is he exaggerating? Is this hyperbole? I want you to feel with me that these words could only spring from the lips of a sovereign God, one who is matchless in power, who has all ability and right and authority to proclaim to you, regardless of your circumstances, I will never, 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 no, never leave you. This is like the song, How Firm a Foundation. Do you remember how that great song ends? He says, he'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That is drawing from Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Oh, my friends, don't just put your confidence in his presence. Put your confidence in his power. He is a sovereign God who alone can say to you with full integrity, I will never, 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 no, never leave you or forsake you. Now we could very quickly move on to verse 6, but there was this little phrase right at the beginning of his statement that we ought not pass over too quickly. Did you notice, you probably didn't because I didn't at first, did you notice that he says, for he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? In the Greek, it's literally, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I want you to just look with me with new eyes at your Bible for a moment. How often do you hear 
the Bible say? God said. How often have you heard from this pulpit, the Lord says, the Bible says, thus saith the Lord. We hear it so often, we almost let it go in one ear and out the other. We ought not forget the sheer wonder, the profundity of the fact that God has spoken to you. Have you forgotten that God himself has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you? This is not the writer of Hebrews saying it on God's behalf. He himself has said this. So we need not forget his presence. Oh, we ought not forget his power. But my friends, we must also place our confidence in his promise that he has spoken to you. How many of us live discontented lives because we live as if God is not a promise-making, promise-keeping God? We hear his promises and we don't dwell on them. We, again, let them go in one ear and out the other. He speaks, we yawn. So just hear him speak to you once again. He himself has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is why we plead with you time and again, time and again, time and again, would you please be men and women of the book? If you want to break free from covetousness and discontent, you've got to saturate your mind and heart in the Bible. Just drink deeply from his plentiful promises. For when you do, if you start meditating on them, that word literally means to chew on them, mull them over, you are going to start realizing, you know what, God always does keep his promises. And I have forgotten that he has promised that he will never leave me. I have forgotten that he has promised never to forsake me. I have, pro I have forgotten that he has promised to meet all of my needs in Christ Jesus. I have forgotten that he is going to one day wipe every tear from my eye. I have forgotten time and again the innumerable promises he has made to me. And so would you this Lord's day anew set your confidence in his promise to you? He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we, as verse 6 says, ought to rightly respond with confidence. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. My spouse isn't my helper. My children aren't my helper. My 401k is surely not my helper. The Lord is my helper. I don't need to be afraid. What can man do to me? Fourthly, have you forgotten that he is not merely your with you. He is not just merely present with you. He is not merely powerful for you. He is not merely promised to you. He has provided richly for you. So place your confidence in his provision. He is a great helping God. Now we all know the great help he has once given us, the great provision he gave us in Jesus so many years ago on a hill called Calvary. We just sang of it a moment ago. All of us remember that Jesus has done an immeasurable work of grace, providing so much for us in Jesus, who lived the life we could never live, who died the death that we deserve, who was mightily, triumphantly resurrected from the dead that we might be redeemed. We remember his provision, but have you forgotten that the God who has helped you is helping you? He has not merely provided for you in the past. He is providing for you this moment. Did you know that the Bible actually calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete, which means in the Greek, the helper? That is a nickname for the Holy Spirit. It is God's great gift of help to you. 
Paul tells us in Ephesians that the Spirit is his down payment to us. The Holy Spirit is basically God saying, here's my down payment of help. I am going to make sure you get all the help you need until at last you come before my throne of grace and I at once and for all wipe away all the burdens from your life. Oh, my friends, have you forgotten what an immeasurable, matchless, priceless gift you have in the Spirit of God? That you can, with full assurance, cry out with all creation, the Lord is my helper, for he has given me a spirit who is sustaining me. He is giving me a spirit. He has given me a spirit who is convicting me. He has given me a spirit who is keeping me to the end. Oh, so we ought to cry out with the writer of Hebrews who himself was echoing the psalmist in Psalm 118. The Lord is on my side. He is my helper. God has richly, richly, richly provided for you, dear church. Oh, let that fill your heart with joy. Because when you finally wrap your mind around this, I think you're going to start noticing that the discontent in your heart is nothing more than a disguised unbelief that God provides for you. Your discontentment is in essence saying, God, I don't actually trust you provide for me. I know you have provided for me, but I don't trust you are providing for me. I trust you have promised me, but I'm not trusting that your present promises will be fulfilled. I, I trust, Lord, that you, you have shown yourself to be powerful. I'm not sure you're up for this challenge, Lord. I know you have been present. We sing about it at Christmas. Emmanuel, God is with us. I know you're with me, but I don't feel like you're with me. I feel left, lost, forsaken. It's disguised unbelief which I think is a fitting reason why this verse ends as it does. For the writer cries out, echoing the psalm, the Lord is my helper, I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? The writer in essence is realizing what I think a lot of you already know, that the great sin of unbelief that is hidden beneath most of your discontent in your life is fear. It's an inordinate, anxious, gnawing fear that if you don't keep a vice grip on your life, that you're going to lose control and that God is not going to protect you. And I want you to see with the psalmist, see with verse 6, that you need to place your confidence not merely in His presence and His power and His promise and His provision, but fifthly and finally, put your confidence in His protection. For he has spoken to you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He is your helper, so you need not fear. What can man do to you? Jesus eloquently, poignantly puts a finer point on it when he says, you don't need to fear other people. The worst they can do to you is take your life, but they cannot take your soul. They cannot touch your heart. They can take your material possessions. They can never take your eternal possessions. They can do physical harm. They cannot do spiritual harm. My friends, have you forgotten that Jesus has promised to us to sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come, nothing is going to be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? 
Have you forgotten that our God is a God of providence? He is a sovereign God. He is a revealing God who has spoken to us. He is a great providing God who has given you all you need and more in Jesus. And he is one who is going to protect you and preserve you, keep you until the end. Have you forgotten that you actually have no need to fear? What can man actually do to you? I just want you to let these verses hit you anew. For you that are in Christ this Lord's day, have verses five and six pierced you? Have you been pierced by the word? Is verse five like a dart to your heart? Has it landed on the bullseye and you are now feeling the cutting sensation of conviction? You feel laid low by this text. It is indeed for you a crippling command. Oh, Kyler, I want to be content. I am, I am convicted by my discontent. I know all the innumerable ways I love and trust the things of this world. Father, forgive me, Lord. Help me. How do I find this rare jewel of contentment? Do you feel crippled by this command? If you do, may I just earnestly plead with you to remember that a sense of feeling crippled before God's commands a sense of feeling inadequate, unable to do what he has called you to do, that's a good feeling. That's a great place to be. For when you feel immobilized on this pew with weak legs, you feel like there's no way I can stand up and fulfill this command. Maybe in spurts, but I can't keep going. In that great sense of desperation, it is at that point you are at last able to lean on his everlasting arms who will raise you up and enable you to do what you cannot do in, in and of yourself. Do you feel his arms underneath you? Do you realize that you actually cannot confidently trust him with courage and boldness? That's impossible in your own strength. The definition of having confidence in Christ is actually putting your weight on him. It's not standing up yourself. It's not obeying him. It is confident that he can do this in you. So this Lord's Day, I plead with you, dear brothers and sisters who are in Christ, oh, would you set your confidence in him? Would you let this dart to the heart convict you anew to meditate on his precious promise to you? I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. Oh, meditate with me anew on the promise that he is with you. He is present for you. Meditate that he is powerful. He alone can say that. Meditate with me. Trust the fact that he has spoken to you. His promises are sure that he is richly providing for you and that he will protect you, keep you, as it were, to the end. But if you do not know Jesus, and in a room this size, hundreds hundreds gathered here this Lord's Day. I know that I know that some of you today know that you know that not only is your heart overwhelmed with covetousness and discontent, but you don't have confidence in Christ because you don't know Him. You know things of Him, but you have never leaned on Him. You don't even know where to begin. And you're thinking, I understand, Pastor, that you said this is how, but I don't even know the first step to how. And if that's you, may I plead with you this day, oh, would you hear me, that the key to our contentment is the key to yours. That we who must renew our confidence in Christ 
you too can place your confidence in Him this day for the first time. For I want you to see that the Lord Jesus Christ, He left the abode of heaven that He might not leave you. He was forsaken on the cross so that you might not be forsaken. He cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Absorbing the penalty of our sin so that you wouldn't have to. And he has spoken to you in his word so that you might know this, so that you might not be endlessly unaware. And so if you feel an unusual sense of conviction, you feel like you, for the first time, have been pierced by the word, my earnest plead with you this Lord's day is that you would join us in placing your confidence in Christ. Just this moment, cry out in the silence of your pew, oh God, I think I see Jesus. Would you help me to trust him like everybody else in this room seems to trust him? Help me to trust his promise that he's here, that he's with me, that he won't leave me, that he won't forsake me, that he's my helper. For if you do, you will join the chorus of all Hickory Grove, indeed of all creation, who will cry forevermore, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Oh, dear church, the Lord is our helper. We don't need to fear. What on earth can men do to us? When Christ is all you have, you're going to finally realize that he really is all you need. Why don't you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed, as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment, we're going to sing, All I Have is Christ. What a fitting benediction, a great conclusion to this service. Perhaps this Lord's Day, you are convicted by the fact that those would be feigned, fraudulent, fake words in your lips. For you must confess that I don't live as if Christ is all I have. I got a lot, or I need more. So this moment, I invite you to cry out in repentance and say, oh God, forgive me. Enable me to fulfill this crippling command to keep my life from, free from the love of money. Oh Lord, I want to be content with what I have, so help me to meditate anew. Help me to put my confidence in your presence and your power and your promise and your provision and your protection. Oh God, open my eyes to see the glory of these two verses. And if you have never met this Jesus, if you want to put your confidence in him for the first time. In a moment, we'll stand and sing. And as we do, there are pastors down here at the front who are not here just to look good. They want to talk to you. Their earnest plea is that you would come and speak to them. You can find them down here or after the service in the lobby. Our invitation to you this Lord's Day is to join us and see that we mean it when we stand and sing, all I have is Christ. Father in heaven, may those words we are about to sing spring from true lips of integrity. Remind us anew that we ought to be content with what we have. Our lives ought to be freed from the love of money, for you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. You are our helper, and so we need not fear. What on earth could any man do to us? 
And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we stand and as we sing the call of Christ to you this day is to come.